You're listening to Country Music Success Stories featuring Music City mentor J.C. Don Valeris. Now, here's your host, Candy O'Terry. We're kicking off 2022 with a trip to Curb Word on Nashville's famous Music Row. Now, the place is owned by music industry giant Mike Curb, and we're going for a conversation with Bobby Tomberlin, one of the most successful songwriters in country music today. Curb Word is a place where the energy is always flowing. And as a songwriter on staff there, Bobby is expected to bring his A-game every single day. He's got to stay inspired, and he's expected to write songs on demand for superstars. And that's just what he does. A lifelong singer and guitarist, this Grammy, CMA, and ACM nominee was born with a great set of pipes. That's how we describe it in radio. Bobby got his start in the music business when he was 11 years old as an announcer for WLVN, his little hometown radio station in Luverne, Alabama. And you're going to hear him tell that story in this interview. Now, he's also got mad guitar skills. And here's how he learned to play like a pro. I would sit in my room and I would play a Waylon Jennings record. And I would pretend I was in a recording studio. And when it came time for the lead, the solo, I pretended that I was the guitar player and I had to play it well. That's what I call a work ethic, even at a young age, right? This interview was recorded in one of the writing rooms at Curb Word, where there was a guitar in the corner and a keyboard and a huge blackboard on the wall, just waiting for lyrics to the next country song to be written. I'd heard a story about how Bobby once sang a duet with the great Loretta Lynn. And so I started out the interview by asking him to take us back to that incredible bucket list moment. She invited me to sing one of the Conway Twitty Loretta Lynn duets with her at her July 4th celebration up at her ranch. She had a big 4th of July festival there. Thousands of people would attend. And of course, I jumped at the chance, but I, I'm not going to lie to you. you usually, were nervous? I'm usually pretty calm. But I was really nervous because she says, oh, yeah, arrive maybe an hour early and we'll go over it and make sure the key is right. Well, I get there and the band leader says, well, no, she says, there's no need to rehearse. And I'm like, I've never even sang with her. What was what, the song? It was called Lead Me On. So tell me what happened. Well, she called me out there and. I was really nervous, and she was seated in this chair like a throne, you know, like the queen that she is. And I was nervous and really doing a lot of praying. And, you know, I'd never sang that song before, and thank goodness I remembered my lines. And it worked. But, however, I was told it was going to be in one key. Then when they started, it was like a whole step lower. So trust me, that was as low, and I can go pretty low. How low? But can that you was go? once I made a promise. <laughs> I mean, I was like reaching for it, and I'm like, I don't want this to fail, you know. But it, but it turned out good. It was like a roller coaster ride. And uh, the next morning, I started seeing pictures of uh, the performance and seeing pictures of me sitting there with Loretta Lynn, and I'm like, I can't even believe this because as a kid down in South Alabama, I went to see. Conway and Loretta and so many other greats. And then I just started thinking about that experience and then other wonderful experiences that I've had. And then this song, I've Lived Country Music, just really wrote itself. 
And so you end up in a recording studio, not just any recording studio. Well, I wasn't planning on even recording this song because, well, number one, I knew it wasn't going to be pitched to another artist because it was my story. And I thought at first, maybe this story was just a little too much of like, look what I've done. And then I, I just happened to walk into Wishbone Studios in Muscle Shoals, Alabama to visit an old buddy of mine, Billy Lawson, who recently bought the studio. And I walk in there and oh my gosh, it was like walking back into 1979. The equipment updated, but the vibe, the atmosphere was so like Hank Williams Jr. recorded family tradition. He really found his sound there. But people like The Temptations, Roy Orbison, recently T. Graham Brown, Sammy Kershaw had recorded new records there. And uh, Billy says, you need to record here. And I'm like, you know what? I have just the perfect song. We're going to play that song right now. Would you introduce it for us? I will. Well, here's pretty much a four-minute story of my life in song. I've lived country music. Well, I sang with Loretta, wrote songs with Whispering Bill. I even got to play Hank's guitar. Rode the roads with little Jimmy Shook hands with Johnny Cash Funny how a dream can take you far I poured my heart and soul into it Yes, I've lived country music As someone who spent 25 years on the air in Boston, I was so fascinated, Bobby, to learn that you first got on the radio when you were a little boy, 10, 11 years old. Tell us how that happened. Did you just knock on the door of your local radio station and say, I want to be on the air, and they let you? Well, first of all, let me just say I can't remember a time when I wasn't consumed with music. I mean, there's pictures of me just a few months old, holding records instead of toys. The music was in you. Oh, it was. And I had a make-believe radio station in my bedroom, and I literally had a stack of records. I would, you know, give the weather forecast. I would try to give news. I wish I had a recording of that. But, you know, had a stack of 45s. Here's Johnny Cash. Here's Merle Haggard. Did you practice talking up records? Oh, you bet I did. So at age 11... My dad and I, we were downtown Luverne, you know, population 2,500. Alabama. Alabama, a little Western auto store. And the owner of the radio station was there that morning, and my dad knew him. And he says, can Bobby just come down to the radio station sometime? And he said, well, bring him this afternoon. My son, Tom, is going to be working and let him just kind of just see what it's all about. When you walked in that studio, you must have felt like a kid in a candy store. Oh, I'll never forget that feeling. You know what it's like. You walk down this huge hall, and there's albums everywhere. And then there's the 45s back then that were all in alphabetical order. You know, I could just pull out a, let's see, T, and there's Conway Twitty, or an H. There's a whole library of Merle Haggard. C for Glenn Campbell. Absolutely. Tom Sport. He's going to be listening to this. So I'm giving him a big shout out. He says, cue up a record. You know, back then you actually queued up the records and it was a Hank Williams. Put the needle down on the record. Right. And it was a Hank Williams Jr. song called Montana Song. And I was hooked after that. And uh, then after a short period, I became the afternoon disc jockey and 
And my mom would pick me up at school, take me to the radio station, and then I would sign on the radio station on Saturday morning and work for like six or seven hours. And it was just such wonderful times. And I interviewed a lot of artists. I just picked up a Billboard magazine resource book, and it had you know, Tammy Wynette Enterprises, Bill Anderson Enterprises, Johnny Cash. And I just randomly started making phone calls and said, hey, I'm Bobby Tomlin with WLVN, Louvern, Alabama. Is Tammy doing any interviews soon? And yep, how about next Wednesday, five minutes, you know, next Wednesday. Except you probably sounded very different than the way, uh, hi, this is Bobby. <laughs> let me tell you something. I actually did have a low voice. What type of music did you listen to? When you were not on the radio. Some records that stand out, Glenn Campbell. I remember, even though it had been out for a few years, Galveston, that one just really rings a bell. I remember Merle Haggard. I've mentioned him already a couple of times. But I love things like Nat King Cole. I love the Beatles. But Hank Williams was a huge influence because I was born and raised about 30 minutes from where he was born and raised. So everywhere in my hometown... He had played. I mean, the hardware store that's there now used to be the theater. So he played there many times. The schoolhouses, the community centers used to be old country schools. There's a Chevrolet dealership. He played at the grand opening, and there's actually a picture from it. So I was told about Hank, you know, when I was five, six, seven, and that just really kind of lit a fire under me it was kind of like well if he can you know leave this area and maybe do something maybe, maybe i have a shot you were discovered by mel tillis tell us that story how did he learn about you after high school i skipped college i worked at another radio station in, in south alabama then i went to muscle shoals for a couple of years and while in muscle shoals i was roommates with mike mcguire of shenandoah and they were just taking off And, you know, I just had access to a lot of great songwriters there. My songwriting mentor, Billy Henderson, we were roommates, he and Mike and I. So they really spent a lot of time with me. They encouraged me. They listened to my ideas. And then Mel Tillis heard some of those songs that I was writing with those guys. And he offered me a publishing contract, $100 a week. We are sitting here at Curve Word with some giant picture windows And as we sat down, you pointed to a building over there and said, when I first moved to Nashville, I lived in that room. Tell me about when you first came to Nashville. Well, when I first came, yeah, I wrote for Mel Tillis' publishing company and the guy that ran the company, his name was Ernie Rao. He's still here in town. And he says, well, I can rent you a little space, like two-room apartment in the upstairs level of this house that I own on Music Row. And it sets across the street from the Nashville Songwriters Association. But at that time, it was Music Mill Studios. People like KT Oslin, Alabama, Reba recorded there. So I would like look out my window or out my back door and see like Alabama in the parking lot. And it was really, it was a magical time. I'm glad the house is still here. Tell me about the first song you ever wrote and recorded. Do you remember the title? I didn't record it, but the first song was a song called Alabama Moonlight. And the group Alabama, you know, they were really happening at the time. And I guess it was a Southern thing, too. And, um, yeah, it was like under that Alabama moonlight, waiting for my dream lover to come along. 
at the time I thought, oh my gosh, man, like I had just discovered something that no one else had ever discovered. But it didn't take me long to realize that I'm going to have to write a lot of songs before I really get something special. And when you say you got to write a lot of songs, I, we've heard this from people like Lori McKenna and Amy Mayo and Chris Lindsay and Kent Blazy and your friend Steve Dorf and Bill Anderson. They talk about how when they first got started, they called it bad kid poetry. <laughs> You know, before <laughs> you're laughing and you, you just said it, you got to write a lot of songs before you write a hit. Well, you have to live too. I mean, when you're 13 or 14, I mean, really, what have you experienced? Most people that want to be songwriters haven't experienced that much life. I mean, I was trying to write about things that I had no idea. I can remember some of the titles, one of them being, I am what I am, and that's all I'm going to be. I mean, can you imagine at 13 writing that? One called, you're too busy cheating on me. And, you know, so I was... When you probably hadn't even had a girlfriend yet, No, right? <laughs> no, just crushes. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your hometown. You mentioned it a couple times, but I'd love it if you could please just paint a picture for our listeners. It's called Luverne, Alabama. Well, first of all, when you enter the city limits, you're going to see a sign that says, welcome to the friendliest city in the South. And it's also, you're going to see a sign eventually that says home of the world's largest peanut boiling. And it's one of those towns where you drive through to go to the beach. There's like two routes that people take for the most part. And this one, just you drive right through. There's no bypass, but it's so charming. And it well may be, it may well be the friendliest city in the South. It's one of those places you go to the grocery store and it turns into like a reunion where you're there for an hour visiting with people, but just beautiful independently owned shops, like an old sweet shop downtown, an old bakery. And, um, when can we go? Well, it sounds like well, a slice of a, Americana. <laughs> what time is it now? We can be there by eight o'clock tonight. Wonderful, you know, great little independent restaurants. And I'm just so proud to see that it's thriving, especially in a time like this, and especially at a time when so many small towns are just, they're gone. Disappearing. Tell us a little bit about your family. Other brothers and sisters? No, nope, only child. Very simple family. You know, my mom and dad, my dad worked for Pepsi Cola Bottling Company, and my mother, she was just a wonderful housewife. She did so for the public. She was an amazing seamstress, and she would make these beautiful dresses for this company that and actually they sold them here in nashville at the store beside the bluebird of all places who gave you your first guitar or did you buy it yourself no my parents bought it for me it was probably when i was five years old and uh, did you learn to play on your own or did you take structured guitar lessons i had two uncles my uncle robert and uncle james and they showed me chords but that's all they had to do was show me chords. And then I took the guitar home and I sat for hours. And so I just played by ear. Isn't it so interesting? Every singer songwriter that we've interviewed or, you know, even songwriters who don't sing their own songs, they all say the same thing regarding playing the guitar as a child, that they played it until their fingers bled literally, that they were absolutely obsessed with figuring it out. You know what really helped me get better? Wow. I would sit in my room and I would play a Waylon Jennings record and I would pretend I was in a recording studio. And when it came time for the lead, the solo, 
I pretended that I was the guitar player and I had to play it well. And that's kind of mentally, that's kind of where I went. You talked about this uh, two-room apartment that you had here, uh, just beyond Music Row. Tell us a little bit about what the city of Nashville was like when you got here. What year was that? It was 1990. I'll never forget. The first week I was here, a buddy of mine, Jim Martin, who was instrumental in me getting my Meltillus deal, because he had been in Muscle Shoals. He was going to show me around town. Let me show you the Bluebird Cafe. We pull up in the Bluebird parking lot. And he starts yelling at this guy with a cowboy hat on, and it's Garth Brooks. And Garth says, hey, Jim, and walks over to the car. That's my, you know, one of the things that happened the first week I was here. And Mel Tillis's publishing company, it's a two-story building, still here. It's owned by Curb. And uh, Mel had an office. George Jones's wife had an office, so George was always there with her. Brooks and Dunn, Alan Jackson, their accountant was in the office. And that's before email really kicked in to the point where you didn't have to come into the office. So they were there all the time. Faith Hill's first producer had an office upstairs. So Faith was always hanging around. Was that when she was still a secretary for Capitol Records? Well, I think it was was doing background work. Right. I guess it may have been because she was just getting ready to work on her first project. Then there is a booking agent there, Joe Taylor, and he booked people like Porter Wagoner, little Jimmy Dickens. So you would walk in that building, and you may see little Jimmy, George Jones. I mean, that was Nashville in 1990. And I remember in that building, in the publishing company office, other producers, other labels coming in, bringing their artists. I remember Shania Twain coming in, listening for her first album before she met Mutt Lang. I remember Martina McBride coming in, listening for her first project. I could just go on and on. It's interesting. Ever since I started coming to Nashville, as a guest of JC and Mike's, they've been here for about 10 years. But ever since I started coming here, I feel like I'm among my people. Like it's a tribe. Like the, the passion for the music is kind of part of the heartbeat of the city. And you must have felt that you were in your right spot. That you were in the place that you belong. I knew without a doubt. The first time I ever came to Nashville, before moving here, my dad brought me up here. It was a few years before. We, you know, take the Demumbrian exit, which leads to Music Row. There was an old Shoney's restaurant here at the time. We park. We're walking in. And the Grand Ole Opry legend, Minnie Pearl, is walking out. And I'm like, yep, this is where this I This is where I yep. belong. So many hits, and I'd love to talk a little bit about them. You co-wrote the Diamond Rio crossover smash, One More Day. Tell us the story behind that song. I wrote that with my dear friend, Stephen Dell Jones, and I met him in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. So that was the really cool part about the success of that song, is sharing it with someone who had kind of been on my journey. It was during the holiday season, and I just started thinking about people that were no longer in my life. And I just got very emotional. I wasn't planning on writing a song. The guitar was there. And before I knew it, I had written the first verse of that song. Last night I had a crazy dream. Wish was granted just for me. It could be for anything. I didn't ask for money or imagine Malibu. One more day with you 
wasn't so emotional that I didn't realize I had something and I just put it down on a recorder and I wish I had that work tape because it was very emotional and um, I was writing with Stephen Dale Jones the next day and I shared with him what I had and he latched onto it and before we knew it it was finished. Well, the song peaked at number one in March of 2001 on the Billboard Country Chart. It went to number six at Adult Contemporary, which is where I got a chance to play that song. The tragic events of 9-11 gave that song a whole new lease on life. Talk about that. Well, you never know what's going to happen with it. I mean, so many times it sits on a shelf and is never heard. But we knew we had something special with One More Day, but never Never expected it to do, you know, what it did and to touch as many people. And, of course, when 9-11 happened, you know, there was a special version released with the president speaking briefly. We started receiving more and more emails from families from 9-11 and how that song had helped heal. And, and of course, we were receiving emails and letters from the beginning, I mean, when it was released. And even today, there's not a week that goes by that we don't receive an email or even a Facebook message from someone that uses it in a memorial service. That must be such an incredible feeling for you as a songwriter, for a song that just has a life of its own. What's really crazy is when you find yourself singing the song at a memorial service like I did last week. I lost a really dear, dear friend of mine who was a high school teacher. Her name was Miss Sue. She encouraged so many people And her students, so many of them, they continued a friendship with her right up till the end. And at her funeral, there were flower arrangements from the class of 2005, class of 1970, you know, four. It was amazing how many students showed up. But I sang that at her service. Were you able to hold it together? You know what? It was one of the hardest times that I've ever had. I can see that on your face right now. And I've sang at a lot of memorial services. I sang at Little Jimmy Dickens, Phil Everly, the Everly Brothers, and and a lot of memorial services. But that one, it was just so sudden during such a hard year. Let's talk about Daryl Worley recording your song, A Good Day to Run. I always love that title. Top 10. Tell me the story behind that song. I met Daryl again in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. It's crazy how That's much. The place. <laughs> it's It's crazy. And then for me to go back and record my new song there. Talk about full circle. But I met Daryl down there. And when I first met him, I've never said this before, not in an interview, but he was like one of the most country has this really deep nasal voice and i mean i didn't dislike it but he kind of found his voice that following year and it had more of kind of a merle haggard influence it seems but anyway we started writing and i just really liked him really nice guy and he came in one morning and he says bobby i saw a danny glover movie the night before called a good day to die he says i think that's that's a great idea for a song and i said daryl you're wanting to get on the radio, buddy. I said, I don't think, believe me, I'm from that radio world. 
And that has helped you, I bet. Well, it has helped me. But in this case, it was like, I don't think I, I can't even imagine a disc jockey saying, good morning, everyone. Good morning, Pittsburgh. Here's a good day to die by Daryl Worley. So after about 20 minutes, we changed it to a good day to run. I'm tired of working every day for a dollar. About to choke on my own blue collar. This ain't gonna last. Misled by the grand illusion, I've come to this conclusion. And it was a good idea because the song did so well. Let's talk about the duet. It's called I'd Want It To Be You. Now, I've seen it two different ways. Willie Nelson, Barbra Streisand, Blake Shelton, Barbara Streisand. Tell me about this duet. Boy, talking about hitting the jackpot for songwriting. That, wow. I mean, just to have those names attached to your bio, and I don't say that in an egotistical way. It's a thankful way. Wrote the song with Steve Dorff. Again, just such a great friend. I consider him extended family. And uh, Jay Landers was involved in the writing, and Blake Shelton and Barbara Streisand recorded the first version of it. And then during the pandemic, she was working on a special project called Release Me, and she wanted to release a version with Willie Nelson. And that was Willie's dream duet. On many interviews, he said, the one person I haven't recorded a duet with that I would love to record with is Barbara Streisand. He told Larry King that. So that's been really cool. Steve and I talked about this recently to be a part of Willie's bucket list. That goes for almost anything but us Always have And I always will remain Words from a heart That you can trust While others come and go You find that certain someone You can always count on To be true To be true If I had a choice Of only one friend in this world You know that I'd want it to be you Tell me about the first time you ever heard one of your songs on the radio. Oh, I can remember it well. It was recorded by Linda Davis. Linda, of course, had the big duet with Reba, Does He Love You, and has had several hits on her own. And she recorded a song called Love Didn't Do It, He Did. And I was driving to my hometown on Interstate 65 and this great disc jockey, Jerry House. 
who used to be, I mean, he was just an award-winning radio announcer for many years here in Nashville. And he played it. And I really, you know, when you hear people say I had to pull off on the side of the road, well, I was at a rest stop. I was close by and I just pulled off, cranked that radio up and couldn't believe it. You know, after years of playing other people's songs. And that was just one of the most amazing feelings. You say love's left you high and dry. Except for those teardrops in your eyes. Say love's really done you in. Oh, but love didn't do it. She did. You say love's always done. You just mentioned Steve Dorff, and he was also a guest on our show. He said, and I quote, if you can't handle rejection, you should go and bake bread for a living. As a songwriter, Bobby, how do you handle rejection? That's what a lot of people don't realize. They think, oh, you've had Barbara Streisand record one of your songs, or you've had a song like One More Day. It doesn't get easier. I mean, like... You know, we'll go in the studio and re- and record a brand new song, and you're just, you know, and I'm like waiting to hear from my publisher, not just to hear from an artist, but just to get the acceptance from my publisher and for them to say, oh, I don't hear anything in that after you've put so much heart into it. So that happens. And then Amy Mayo and Chris Lindsay have told us stories about how they write a great song and an artist comes along and says, I love that song. And then they put it on hold. And then they don't record it. Oh, I've had that happen so many times. And and I'll tell you something else that could, if there was such thing as a songwriter therapy class, is getting a song recorded and you have to wait a year, two years before knowing it's going to make a project. That happened with me on Faith Hill. I had a song that I wrote with Rivers Rutherford called I Want You for her Fireflies record. That's at a time when records were still going double platinum, you know, about 15 years ago. We waited for almost two years. She recorded almost 40 songs for the project, and only 12 or 13 was going to make it. So that was a long wait to finally find out, you know, if it was going to make it. You flip on the radio and you say to yourself, I wish I wrote that song. What is it? You know, Wichita Lineman that Jimmy Jimmy Webb Webb, wrote one of my favorite songwriters of all time. I can't imagine how that would feel to say I wrote Wichita lineman and the great Paul Williams, you know, that wrote rainy days and Mondays for the carpenters. Always get me down. And, um, Oh, I classic songs. Oh, I could name you have a top 40 list of songs. I wish I'd have written. What is it like to be on the stage at the grand Ole Opry? I don't know that I can find words for that. I've shared the stage with Larry Gatlin, with Stephen Dorff, Steve's son, Stephen, the actor. and But one of the coolest moments on the Opry stage was when Sam Williams, Hank Williams Jr.'s youngest son, who just signed with Universal Records, I was with him sharing the stage on the night of his debut performance. And there on that circle of wood where his granddad stood, and there's his dad, Hank Williams Jr., who's been in the business since eight, 
and that crowd, you know, just not knowing what to expect. But that was pretty awesome. Just being on the stage is one thing, but being on a stage during a moment like that is another. Singing at Little Jimmy's Memorial on the Opry stage, you know, and it was televised, and and that was very emotional, you know, since he had been a part of the Opry since the 40s. I know that you have been in films and you've had your music in films. Now, what's that all about? How do you like that? You know what? Great experiences. Every one of them has been great. You know, I've been a part of maybe, I guess, three films where I was in the acting role. But this one movie, Wheeler, where Steven was the star, Christopherson was in the film, and I played myself all throughout the movie. That was just a joy. That, That movie, you know, it's about a dreamer from Texas that comes here to chase his dreams, which is not the most unusual storyline. But this story has a lot of twists and turns that, you know, they're not predictable. So if you haven't checked it out, it's on Amazon. It's called Wheeler. And it was a great experience. Five seasons on The Singing Bee. Do you ever sleep? You have all these different mediums that you're able to do so well in. What was it like to do a TV show? Well, that was just a great experience, too, because we had such a wonderful cast and uh, crew. And Melissa Peterman, the host who was in the Reba TV show and has been on numerous television shows, she was the host and she was a joy to work with. And everyone was just it was like just supporting each other. It was a hard gig. I mean, we had to learn, you know, it's basically a game show where we had a band. Steve Dorff was the music leader. And had wonderful singers and band members. But we had to know a lot of songs, like hundreds of songs. And we would start the song. The contestant would finish the song. And and we couldn't mess up. Because (laughs) if we messed up, we could ruin their chance at winning a lot of money. But that was a great experience we filmed in L.A. The latest CD is called out of road, which you clearly are not out of, (laughs) by the way. You've got incredible guest vocalists on this record. So tell us all about it. Well, this is the CD I always wanted to make. You know, Whispering Bill Anderson from the Grand Ole Opry, he came in and did a part on a song called the Grand Ole Opry, a song that I wrote. Vince Gill came in, sang harmony. Bobby Bear, Country Music Hall of Fame member, he came in and sang with me on a song called The Songwriter. And Linda Davis, I mean, it was just so much fun for me because I wasn't thinking of being commercial. It was totally about heart and songs that I really, really believed in. And, and you know, it's really been accepted well. And, and that's the greatest feeling when people really get it. And, and I'm still, you know, moving product. And that's so cool. Grammy, CMA, ACM nominations. What are you most proud of in this incredible career of yours? That's an easy question to answer. Friendships. Because awards won't talk to you. Gold, platinum records, they get dusty. Seriously. That sounds all poetic, I know. But, you but could it's write a the, song but, about that. But there's nothing like being able to pick up the phone and call a songwriter or artist friend. There's nothing like calling Bill Anderson like I did last night and talk about a new song that we're excited about. Calling Steve Dorff, having lunch with him, sharing our life's problems. That's huge. Doesn't matter what you do. And my whole point of that, people do think this is a world just where awards, chart positions, where that just 
makes up for everything, but that's not the case. It's about friendships for me. What's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten, whether it's personal or professional? The one I was told right when I came to town, the one thing that people kept saying to me, and they didn't really have to say it to me, was be a good hang. I'm not going to bring dark energy in the room unless it's just I'm in the middle of a crisis because that's not a good thing. I mean, and never be that guy that comes in saying all the way we did it in the 90s, all the way we did it in 2005. Nobody wants to hear that. So I say just uh, be a good hang and be kind to people. Final question. Fill in the blank. The key to my success in country music has been what? The love for it. Bart Herbison from the Nashville Songwriters Association told me a couple of years ago, he said, Bobby, you've loved the music so much. It's loved you back. Bobby Tomberlin, I want to say thank you so much for being our guest this week on Country Music Success Stories. Thank you for telling us your story. Well, it's been an honor. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm J.C. Don Valeris, your Music City mentor. Bobby Tomberlin is a class act and one of the most driven writers in country music. If you're like me, after listening to his fascinating life story, you're probably feeling all filled up with inspiration, and you might even be considering a career in songwriting yourself. But how do you kickstart a career like Bobby's? I asked him to pass along his advice to you, and this is what he had to say. Number one, I do believe you have to be where the music is. I would love to be able to say, oh, you can do it from your hometown, but there is nothing like coming to a music community, whether it be Los Angeles, New York, or Nashville. And I hate to use the same old word that people use, networking, but it's true. It's it's about connecting with someone that really just works with you, like I did. You know, I went to Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and I met a couple of people. We still we work together to this day, all these years later. And that's and there's just something special about that. I say that's a huge part of it. Bobby is absolutely correct. Living in a musical city center like Nashville is essential to launching a career as a writer. Now, you might be thinking, but JC, I can write from anywhere in the world. And that is correct. But the thing you can't do from anywhere in the world is network with the people who can take those songs you have written to the next level. You can try to send them via email and sing them over the phone or even record videos of you performing them. But unless you're engrossed in the day-to-day networking of Nashville, your chances of getting the right people to notice what you are doing is far lower than if you lived here. If you're in a position to relocate, here is my number one piece of advice on moving. Make sure you are making enough income while you are also working to gain attention as a writer. You'll need money for studio time to demo your work. You'll need it for musicians to play on the songs. And if you can't sing them yourself, you'll need to hire a studio vocalist. People often ask me about a job to consider when they're moving to Nashville. And I always like to recommend anything in the food industry because it's flexible. You can either work a dinner shift to have your days open for co-writing, or you can take a lunch shift to keep your evenings free for performing at open mics and going out to support your co-writers. If you're not in a position to relocate at the moment, but see that coming in the future, my advice is pretty much the same. Work to save as much money as you can while also exploring ideas of employment in Nashville. Keep writing every single day and begin connecting with writers in Nashville. 
It's never too early to start building your network of people. Take as many trips to Music City as you can, go to writer's rounds, and introduce yourself. Stay connected with whoever you meet via social media and email. Set coffee dates when you're in town and take meetings with anyone who is willing to pass along their advice. Before you know it, you'll have a solid foundation for a potential move. And if you'd like any more advice on this subject, head over to our YouTube channel, which is filled with videos and advice on this very subject. Just search Music City Mentor on YouTube and you'll find it. More wisdom you can use from Music City Mentor, J.C. Don Valeris. If you liked country music success stories, we hope you're going to spread the word about our podcast and tell your family and your friends. We'd also like to ask you to do us a favor. Please leave a review of our show. Check out our website, countrymusicsuccessstories.com, and follow us on social at Country Music Success Stories. Easy enough, right? We've got more legends to meet and stories to tell. Your Music City mentor, J.C. Don Valeris, is gathering up all sorts of wisdom on how you can break into country music if that's your dream. So don't miss a single episode. This is Candy O'Terry saying thank you for listening to Country Music Success Stories, where the stars welcome us into their homes and tell us how they made it in Nashville. <laughs>